Well, Vertical Church, packed house, how are you? Yeah, we're ready for church today, good? Yeah, ready to participate. I don't know if you've been with us before, but just in case you haven't, if I get interrupted or encouraged or, you know, other things during this service, during my teaching, that's okay. That's part of what happens here. One of the worst parts about church is feeling like you have to sit on your hands and not participate for roughly 28 to 32 minutes. So we like a little bit of interaction here. Deal? All right, good. Well, it takes a little while to warm up. That's all right. Well, we're headed today starting this new series. I'm, I'm pretty focused and energized about because as I was writing this teaching throughout the course of the week, I realized this is something that I really, really need to work on. In fact, as you see this title, you're probably thinking focal point, focus. We're probably going to talk about focus. And if I were to imagine you guys over the next few minutes, we'll probably have trouble with this idea in itself. So let's start this way. Half-heartedly is not an adverb that calls out good feelings, is it? You know, we never say about a person, oh, I really respect that guy. He really does everything halfway, right? We use it to describe someone whose actions, although the actions may be correct, they lack the appearance or true desire or commitment to the task. I can remember as a kid when my parents would give me instructions to do something that seemed really, really important to them, like cleaning up my room or closing the door on those hot Mississippi summer days. I did those things, just not quite with the concern or enthusiasm it seemed like my parents wanted. Thinking back on your childhood, I would imagine that you were probably very similar. You see, when we're children, the motivation and concerns of adults, they're foreign to us, aren't they? We don't understand them until much later. We can sense their urgency, but we don't understand their importance because we just haven't matured enough yet. The Bible actually makes reference to this in 1 Corinthians 13, like a gold star for getting the Bible so quickly today. Deal? The Bible says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The Bible is being very direct here. Maturity. Developing past childhood in our words and thoughts and logic is actually a choice. At some point, we have to make the decision to move on from being childlike to being an adult. This verse in today's language is saying we should graduate from adolescence and start getting reps as an adult, and that is actually a choice, one that we're going to have to make over and over and over again if we are to mature. This is such a strong place of accountability for us, isn't it? Men. I wonder how the world would change if more of us wrote this on our doorposts, where we were forced to read it often, and our hearts, where we were able to listen to it frequently. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I don't want us to miss this. This verse is found in what's most commonly known as the love chapter, the chapter that teaches about, in its own words, the greatest thing that will remain. Maybe some of you are familiar with this chapter. It's got a list in it, a strong list at that, that includes faith, hope, and love. And then it relates to us that of these three things, that's a pretty solid list, isn't it? That of these three things, faith, hope, and love, the greatest in this list is love. In another spot, the Bible tells us that God 
is love. 1 John 4, 8. I believe this is why we can assert that the greatest, most godly characteristic we can own and display is actually love. We've been conditioned to see that as weak. The Bible paints a very different picture. The problem with love is that for humans, it can get complicated. Let's just kind of stop and all amen right there, right? You know the complications of love, our interaction with it, with matters of the heart can be extremely disorienting. It's been the inspiration for so much artistic expression throughout history. There's so many examples I could use here, but just to give the people what they want, let's go with John Mayer and Taylor Swift. Because who expresses their feelings better than these two people? In 2009, they decided to give the world a gift and team up in a relationship and our mayor's record battle studies, and they recorded a song called Half of My Heart. Check these lyrics out. Half of my heart's got a real good imagination. Half of my heart has you. Half of my heart's got a right mind to tell you that half of my heart won't do. Well done, John. Describes so many relationships. Sadly and shockingly, John and Taylor didn't work out. <laughs> I know we've all been through our season of grief. And then COVID hit and we grieved all over again. These lyrics say something so true about the human heart. It seems to have two halves that often don't feel the same way. Those two halves don't get along. We say this in multiple ways, a heart divided, a heart at war. This is most famously captured in one sentence from a man named Paul in his letter to the people of Rome. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. And I should probably quote that part of the Bible more. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That just feels so true, doesn't it? As you think about your own life, I want you to hear that verse and, and actually hear you're not alone in that. It would be nice if the heart and the mind agreed most of the time, wouldn't it? In fact, I would even take if both sides of my heart were able to get along most of the time. What we can see from this verse is that our hearts with all their complications have been causing people trouble for a very, very long time. We get this at a human level, but the harder thing to comprehend, and what we're going to talk about for most of the morning this morning, is to try to understand this with our relationship with God as well. It is very clear as we investigate what God desires, He wants relationship, not subjects. This is easy to get confused about, especially if we have a performance-based mentality about God's approval or lack thereof over our lives. Some of us here today have perhaps spent most of our stories wondering why it's going the way that it's going. And maybe we should have started here this morning. I just want to be direct and caring and honest in my answer to that very big question. What's gotten me here in my life? I want to propose to you today in a caring way that it could be because you aren't invested in a relationship with God. I know it's not the sexy answer, and it's not going to sell millions and millions of copies of anything, but it is actually the truth as I have observed it over my short life. 
The reason, many of the reasons why you may be where you are today in your story is that you just haven't taken a relationship with God that seriously. You may have been focused on other things, and I want to be sure that you don't feel judged here, okay? You need to say okay, because I don't like judging people. I mean, I do, but not this publicly. (laughs) There's not a person in this room who hasn't lived this way for at least a season focusing on other things. But if you're trying everything you know to fix where you are, and it's just not working, today may be the reason that you're searching for. And that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? It's our best efforts that have gotten us where we are so far. If what you knew was going to allow you to course correct, you most likely would have done it by now. You need new information and new strategies. See, the key to life You may want to jot this down. The key to life is actually longing. Longing for the right things. The thing that will order everything else. And that thing is a relationship with God. David of the Bible is described as a man after God's own heart, which is very confusing when you study his life and all of its mistakes. He wrote a song actually with an opening lyric that sounds this way, Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my, do you see it, whole heart. This gives us the indication that he's not giving thanks to God half-heartedly. He's giving thanks to God wholeheartedly. What David is saying here is, God, I'm going all in here as much as I know how with as much as I know of me. If this doesn't match your life approach, there's an incredibly high chance that you will miss your purpose because you have previously missed the correct focus. So let's ask a big question here before we continue in this teaching. Why let's talk about the heart in a series called Focal Point? That's a great question, isn't it? Here's a great answer. According to Jesus Christ, it's our heart that ultimately determines our focus. Think about that for a moment. It isn't your parents' desires ultimately that determines your focus. It isn't your bank account or your success or your pride. It's your heart. I want to slow down here and actually understand the heart in a new way. And by new, I mean more Jewish It's tragic that we as Christians don't more fully understand our Jewish heritage. This may go without saying, but just to make sure we're we're all on the same page, this is one of those focus moments in my teaching. Everybody still here? Just to make sure that we're all on the same page, Jesus was Jewish. He grew up Jewish. It was his culture, and if we don't recognize this fact, we will most certainly Americanize him. And when we Americanize Jesus, we actually miss Jesus. Now, let me say very clearly, there's nothing wrong with us being American. I think it's actually an honor. And if you look at the world, it's actually a privilege in every sense of the word. But if we see Jesus as American, we see him as something that he wasn't. And for those of us who follow him, we would do well to remember this is the very thing that allowed the religious people of his day to justify killing him publicly in cold blood. 
In the Jewish worldview, the worldview of Jesus and his culture, the heart is the epicenter of existence. The heart drives everything. It's the center, it's the core of who we are. And it houses, catch this, the heart houses our deepest desires. Again here with David in the book of Psalms, Psalm 37 verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your folks. No, he will give you the desires of your heart. This guy understood something about life that maybe we're missing. It's not desires of the mind or desires of your spouse or desires of your culture, desires of your heart, your central motivating place. So let's pause here for a question. How connected are you with your central motivating place? If you want to just drop an awkward question in your meetings this week or in your meals, like, hey, just talk to me about the desires of your heart. The thing they will say back to you is, did you take a job at a church this week? It's an awkward question. It's one we should be serving up to our friends more. Proverbs 19.2, it's another verse that's a little more obscure, but it's more direct. Desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Where was that when I was 15? Let me read it again because this, I don't know, I wrote a lot of stuff, but that's God's writing that, so it's probably more important. Desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Implication, you have a way that God has designed for you. There's a greater plan. The question of why over your life is not for you to write, it's for you to discover And when you get in a hurry, when you outpace God, when you're not walking in the spirit that he has planted inside of you, then you're going to miss the thing that he's designed for you to do. It's one of those tragic parts of being human is that we can live an entire life and someone can put us in a box underground and we miss the plan. We don't miss the love of God, but we miss the joy and fulfillment that comes with living out our purpose. As much as our culture touts the optimum way to engage the heart is to let it run wild with desire, the Bible caringly informs us when we do this, we're most certainly running recklessly towards destruction. Headlines for today can confirm. Now, when I'm talking about maturing our heart And having knowledge, I don't mean domesticating our heart. There's been enough of that in the church, and it has not been effective. Amen? I'm not asking you to be more domesticated. I'm asking you to be more educated, to be more taught, to be more mentored. Could the state of our world be summarized today that easily? We are a people of unmentored hearts. We do not know foundationally the proper things to value. As a result, we lack two things, direction and discipline. Sound familiar? So let's bring this back to a phrase before we get to the Bible, some words of Jesus. What our heart values, our life will reflect. See, the best way for me to know your heart is to actually read your life, not the things you say, the things that you do. The heart is the bit of the human soul where it turns, we will follow. 
This is why it's so dangerous for us in our lives to hand the reins over to a romantic relationship or physical pleasure because that will pull the reins in a particular direction. This is why we can't hand the reins over our lives to Fox News or CNN or the next thing offering fame and fortune and validation because those things, we're putting a bit in our mouth and saying, please, please control the rest of my life. Please just make me go wherever you say that I should. In the famous words of Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. Of the people I sit with who are in copious amounts of pain, at least half of them are there for this reason. They've ended up someplace else, a place they never intended or desires. In our attention economy, it's so easy for all of us to almost without realizing it, allow external things to drive our mood. And in short order, they will drive our lives. See, we care way more about those external things than those external things care about us. Let me repeat that. The things in your life that are attempting to not so subtly control you and grab your focus, you care way more about them than they care about you. This is what makes God so attractive when we properly understand him. He's the exact opposite. He's the inverse. He cares way more about us than we care about him. Isn't that true, Vertical? To me, that is impressive. It is very hard for me in my life to outpace caring for someone more than they care for me. God does it all the time. It's impressive and it's true. It's the kind of information that mentors the heart and informs our focus. I meet so many Christians today so confused about the posture of God towards their lives. So many of us are walking around worried that God forgot to punish us for something that really chapped him a few months ago. Instead of seeing God as our father who loves us in a way that we can't possibly understand, and that mistake breaks his heart, it breaks his heart because it could send you in a different direction, away from his love, self-selecting, self-sabotaging. See, when we properly understand the heart of God towards us, we desire to be in relationship with him. We're going to get to that a little more later. If you're struggling, let me just tell you this caringly. If you're struggling in your relationship with God, it is most likely because you have an incorrect view of how he feels about you. You believe that your failures define you in your relationship with God. Not true. God's desire over your story was to launch a rescue mission that we celebrate once a year to remind ourselves that's how God feels about us. That's how God feels about me. And guess what? We have built a community here that loves to celebrate the fact that God has rescued us from something. I don't have a weak grace in my story because of all the places where I have failed forward and backward that you know about. 
Maybe. Maybe the key to growing a church and to building the kingdom and spreading it on earth is doing exactly what the Bible does and says, hey, before you start to celebrate this guy as a man after God's own heart, let me tell you the story about how he slept with his neighbor. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Before you celebrate Peter as the man that literally established the church, we're first going to tell the story about how he said he had never heard of Jesus. That's quite a big failure, isn't it, church? But since then, we've been taught to cover over those places, and it's killing us in this community. Because we understand the heart of God over our lives, we live differently. All right, back to the notes. One day, Jesus himself, he actually took this subject head on. Before we get into his words, let me just point out something very briefly here. Jesus had a very clear understanding of his mission and of his vision and of his timeline. And if that's the case, if Jesus diverted off onto a subject and he chose to tell a story about that subject, he was doing it with a great deal of intentionality. He believed that it was essential. So as we hear his words together over the next just few seconds to tell the story, I want you to adopt that posture. These words are obviously essential and intentional. Luke chapter 12, everybody ready? The words of Jesus here. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, oh boy, you fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up a treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, apparently church with Jesus was very short. That's a powerful story, isn't it? It's one that causes us to think and to reflect. And if we're not careful, we'll walk away saying, God hates rich people. This is obviously not true. Jesus was up to something much larger here. The repetition is so blatant, it's nearly impossible to miss. This is obviously a story about a man whose focus was himself. The irony here is that the origin of his blessing was something that was completely outside of his control and completely dependent on the blessing of God. With all of our advances, we still haven't figured out how to make it rain, to control the weather in such a way that it does our bidding, have we? What a storyteller Jesus was. With this first sentence, he makes this big point. When God brings us good things, we should ask him what to do with them. When God brings us good things, we should be talking to God about what we should do with those good things. Unfortunately, this is not the route this man takes. 
He chooses to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Was anybody listening to that part of the story saying, wait, was that actually necessary? Why, why are you tearing one thing down to build another? Why don't you just build another one and leave the one that is as it is? This detail exaggerates to make a point. It's a strategy that's recognizable and also illogical. But we do this as a point of accountability. Jesus is telling us in this story, rather than share, we store. Remember the life of the chair offering we discussed a couple of months ago? Remember that we pointed out that most people don't make it that far, but we can be different. Swiftly, the parable of Jesus turns towards the inner posture of the man. Here we see Jesus revealing the inner life that leads to external actions. For the record, this is emotional health right here. Not just in the pages of the Bible, but in the mouth of the Son of God. The rest this man's soul anticipated was much shorter than reality. We have a word for this in our modern language. Temporary. Temporary things, when we take that last step into our eternal destiny, they're passed down to temporary lives. And the cycle goes on and on. I love the way Jesus ends this parable. Did you see it? It's directional. It implies focus or a path or intent. He uses this phrase, a very strange one to me, rich towards God. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Did it catch your attention? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Here's what I, I think it means, and I think it's the major point of this story of Jesus this day. We should move towards God because we desire him. We desire him more than. More than what? More than the thing that you're desiring more than him. This way we act in our pursuit of God in a way that says, the way we act with our life, we value God, even above abundance. Abundance so large that we would need to tear something down to build a bigger one just to hold all the stuff. <laughs> That's easier said than done, right? But once it's been said, we actually have to do it. From this point forward, if you do not live this way, it isn't because no one taught you, it's because you just don't want to. So, with this teaching from Jesus that's so radical and offensive in so many ways, we have to acknowledge together how difficult a teaching like this of Jesus is to actually carry out. This is a step we often miss in church, don't we? We often present really polished speeches without acknowledging just how difficult it can actually be to do what Jesus tells us to do. This is why failure most often stops people in the church, because it surprises us. The people around us at church make it look so easy, but when we get out there, it's not so easy, is it, vertical? This is certainly the point and the motivation behind the caring warning that Jesus gives in this parable, no doubt about it. If you're anything like me, these teachings of Jesus can be more daunting and disciplinary than caring and comforting. It's taken me a long time in my life to understand this thing that God does. One of the most blatant forms of caring 
is warning. You see, when we exist in relationship and we see something going on in someone else's life that is not good for them, that is dangerous for them, and the people that are in their charge, and we don't say anything, that's not caring. Isn't it strange that's exactly the opposite of what most of our families taught us? Sweep it under the rug, Ben. Let's move on. And I followed that for a while, but I'm just tired of tripping over the mountain of stuff under my family rug. Anybody with me? I'm tired of having to go around. Let's just fix this and get honest about it. So we break this warning down as we're closing out very quickly into two things that hopefully will be a little bit easier to remember. If our master is God, it will equal gratification. If our master is wealth, it will equal worry. If your master is God, you will live a gratifying life. Further stated, when your desire is for God above all else, you will receive pleasure, satisfaction, fulfillment, and relief. I love that list. How about you? These are promises that many in this room know to be true. You just heard them reply. Our lives have shown us over and over and over again. When your master is money, the pinnacle of what we would call earthly abundance, you will live a life defined by anxiety. When your disaster is for abundance, when your desire is for abundance, by any means necessary, you receive the opposite of that list of peace. The Bible breaks those results down into three main symptoms, fear, worry, and loss. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's time for us Christians to begin focusing on some soul care. Just so we're on the same page at this point in the teaching, followers of Jesus with means are powerful tools for the purposes of God. This has been true even since the early church with a man named Erastus who funded the venture. The question that must be asked in our relationship with financial abundance is, am I using it or is it using me? And I'd love for you to take notice. I'm, I'm not saving you time to launch into please give to the church at the end of the year. This is bigger than that. I mean, you can do that if you'd like. <laughs> That's not what this is about. It's about your relationship with abundance. Jesus knew that abundance can be a very distracting thing. And based on the economy of the world, there's one group of people that is in the most danger for distraction, and it's us. So let's put a pause in the teaching here with this phrase, what first gets our focus will eventually get our faith. Better to know that early on in your relationship with things. Careful, it's usually not long before attention turns to devotion. So here's a line of questions that I'd love to guide your thinking this week. You do that, right? Between Sundays, you think? Let me give you some guidance there. Three questions, very direct. Ask yourself, where's my focus? What's getting my attention most? Is it a thing that if it gets my devotion will take me where I want to go 
instead of someplace else? Tough questions. May God be with you as you ponder them. Let's pray. God, as we experience your abundance, we ask that you help us. Help us to commit to keeping you the first desire, the thing we move toward. We've all been given much, so we ask that we would be able to give much away. As you preside over the battle that rages in our hearts, God, the battle for loyalty and devotion, give us grace and mercy to help us choose you. In this Christmas season, we thank you, God, for being so extravagantly good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for your attention. See you back here next week.